Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Hello, friends, and happy Tuesday to you. It's August 29th, and you are listening to Tell Me Everything with John Fugelsang. I'm Democratic strategist and serious XM contributor Max Burns, and I'm sitting in for John this week while he gets some much-needed rest. My goodness, what a day it's been, and it is always a pleasure to have you here with us. I want to encourage you to join our conversation. I'll be taking your calls a little later in the hour. Give us a ring at 866-997-4748, or you can always shoot me your thoughts on Twitter at TheMaxBurns. Our intro music today is, of course, the King of Pop, Michael Jackson, born on this day in 1958. He would have been 65 today. And speaking of, we have one thriller of a show for you, thanks to a really incredible lineup of guests covering some of the most important political and policy topics facing the country today. This hour, I'll be talking with writer Amanda Moore about her absolutely wild article in The Nation about spending nearly a year undercover infiltrating the new alt-right, and it shatters a lot of the preconceptions we have about who the alt-right are, what they value, and what they're after. Tomorrow, we've got even more good stuff for you, including Playboy's White House correspondent, the always fascinating Brian Karam, and also former Tea Party Republican Congressman Joe Walsh. You heard that right. And Joe might even take some of your calls with me. We have Chris Hosselt, executive producing the show tonight, Thea Harper producing in Brooklyn, while I'm coming to you live and in full-spectrum audio from the Burns Center for Broadcasting in beautiful Manhattan. Now, we'll jump right into some news bites in a second, but first, just a few milestones I want to make sure we mark here. Uh, Shays Rebellion took place on this day in 1786, better known as America's first insurrection. In response to a debt crisis and a tax revolt in western Massachusetts, the government was asking for money and not paying their bills. People were upset. That revolt lasted almost six months and scared America's political leaders enough that they said, hey, let's get together in Philadelphia and maybe write a proper constitution to fix some of this stuff. Now, imagine that political leaders responding to a crisis by actually making the government work better. Kevin McCarthy, hope you're listening. Take notes, buddy. And in 1966, the Beatles finished up their last ever ticketed concert at Candlestick Park in San Francisco. And as we know from history, they were never heard from again. Netflix launched today in 1997 as a DVD rental service. 
And if you're a member of Gen Z, a DVD is like a streaming movie that came on a plastic disc. And in 2005, Hurricane Katrina made landfall in Louisiana, devastating the region, killing almost 2,000 people. Even nearly 20 years later, parts of Louisiana are still recovering from that hurricane and all the Republican management that followed. And we are also marking another hurricane that's moving up on Florida now, Hurricane Idalia, which is expected to make landfall on Wednesday. So please, folks, stay safe. Listen to public advisories. Don't try to ride it out. I understand it's Florida, but please, common sense should win the day here. Now, I know that this is going to break some hearts, but the Suarez family is in mourning tonight. That's Miami Mayor Francis Suarez. He dropped out of the Republican primary today, and that's going to come as a big disappointment to his supporter. Suarez was last seen polling at a healthy 0% in national surveys, so at least now he has more time to focus on draining Miami's finances by investing in various crypto schemes. In more importantly and immediately relevant news, I don't know if you guys saw this, but Mike Pence's team is clearly cooperating with investigators to put former Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, behind bars, and they really are not being subtle about it. Here's former Pence chief of staff, Mark Short, on CNN, absolutely demolishing Mark Meadows' defense in the Georgia election interference case. It's probably true that uh, Mark was acting at the behest of the president, and I think he does deserve uh, the benefit of the doubt there as far as what he was doing. But I do think one challenge for him is to say, this is all my official capacity. If that was true, then why was he circumventing all of White House counsel's advice? Why wasn't Pat Cipollone involved? Why wasn't that team involved? Why wasn't DOJ involved? Instead, Mark recruited outside lawyers who he wanted to listen to. And so I think that undercuts the notion that this was all part of my federal responsibility if I'm not getting counsel from the people who hired into your office to serve the White House in that role. Well, that's a good question. If Mark Meadows is, as he said, just following his job and working for the government, why didn't he involve any government lawyers in his little Georgia scheme? And you may have heard that and heard Mark Short saying, give Mark Meadows the benefit of the doubt. But listen, as a guy who speaks pretty fluent Washingtonese, when Mark Short says we need to give Meadows the benefit of the doubt, what he's saying is that he was working at Trump's orders. It isn't meant as a statement of support. Because remember, Donnie Willis is making the case here that Donald Trump led an organized crime ring that conspired to rig the Georgia popular vote count. And what Mark Short is saying here is essentially, yeah, Mark Meadows just said he was working for the president. Believe him, because that helps make the prosecution's whole case. And Team Pence also looks like it's going after Trump directly, because Short also had a few thoughts about Trump's perfect phone call with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Let's play A2. So we weren't as involved in what was happening in Georgia, to be candid. I think that, as I've said many times, I think the actions that were taken were wrong. I don't think there's evidence that there was fraud or that the Georgia election was stolen. And so um, to, to call on Raffensperger to, to find 11,000 votes, I think, is going to be a pretty challenging uh, defense for them. But do you think that Meadows, in that moment, was trying to ease the transfer of power to Joe Biden? Um, you know, I, I think that uh, there was plenty of evidence of, of White House asking that we halt transition efforts. And so um, that would, I think, also run counter to that defense. I mean, it doesn't get much more clearer than no. I mean, Mark Short used to be friends with Mark Meadows. But, you know, Short is at least proving that one Republican can put country over party. 
because it doesn't get much more damning than saying, hey, Donald Trump told us to halt the presidential transition while he tried to steal Georgia's electoral votes. That's pretty clear to me. I can't imagine a jury is going to come to a much different conclusion there. And it isn't just Trump who seems to have no idea how the government actually works, because this next story I want to share with you actually blew me away. Yesterday, we spent some time talking about Vivek Ramaswamy, and I'm sorry, but we're going to do a little bit more because the GOP's latest trump light grifter has zero idea how the government works, something he keeps reminding us of every single minute of every single day. As it turns out, he doesn't even know what his own positions are, because Rivik got called out for lying on Fox News last night by, of all people, Sean Hannity. And Ramaswamy was sitting down with Hannity for what I'm sure he thought would be a softball interview. I mean, it's Sean Hannity. There is no hardball on that show. But it was pretty clear that old Sean wasn't amused by Ramaswamy trying to lie his way out of a question about Israel. Go over some of the issues, though. You know, you said aid to Israel, our number one ally, only democracy in the region should end in 2028 uh, and that they should be integrated That's with false. their neighbors. I have an exact quote. You want me to read it? That's actually. Yeah, you, I, I can tell you. <laughs> That's false. Uh, I have the exact quote. Now, you know, your campaign is going just great when your own direct quotes are your biggest enemy. And how bad do you have to be at this to turn Sean Hannity against you? I mean, the guy is an unofficial advisor to the Republican Party. He'd promote a ham sandwich for the White House if it promised to own the libs every day. But Hannity and Ramaswamy also got into it over Russia and China, because Ramaswamy seemed to have no idea that Russia, China, and Iran were already in a de facto alliance and supporting each other militarily. This is the exact same guy who says he's going to solve the Ukraine crisis in a week. I mean, Lord help us. But it was also a pretty busy day on Capitol Hill. We heard some, some actually sad news. House Majority Leader Steve Scalise, who is by all accounts a terrible person, announced that he's been diagnosed with blood cancer, multiple myeloma, and listen, as terrible a person as Steve Scalise might be, uh, I wish him a recovery. Uh, that is a terrible thing as someone who has seen cancer up close. You don't wish that on anyone. And part of being a Democrat is being able to step aside and have the basic humanity to say, I disagree with this guy, but I, I wish him well in recovery. No one wants to see a person suffer like that. Meanwhile, in Uganda, uh, there is a, a new law that's been passed that has been stringently anti-gay. Anti this is a place that has put people in prison for merely talking about homosexuality. And one Ugandan man now has the, the awful, awful notoriety of becoming the first person in the nation to be charged with the crime of aggravated homosexuality. Now, this is something that I think a lot of Americans don't realize, that many African countries not only have very regressive views on gay rights, but they actively criminalize this. These people are put in jail, they are beaten, they're often exiled from communities. Individuals can be shamed into losing their homes just by allegations of being gay. And advocates now fear that that new law that was enacted last year will lead to large-scale executions. And I can tell you, as someone who's worked in international human rights, who's worked with Dr. Frank Mugisha in Uganda, one of the great leaders of the gay rights movement there, who's had his own life threatened many times, that is not an idle threat. There is very little structurally in Uganda to support the gay community. 
They are doing this work at incredible personal risk to themselves. They are fearing every day that they'll be taken out of their homes, that they'll be killed, that their families will be threatened. And, and we stand with them. I hope to have Dr. Magisha on the show here soon to talk about this directly, because it will shock so many in America with as far as we've come on gay rights and the great distance we still have to go. Now, that doesn't mean that everything's all great in American democracy. If you look at Tennessee today, Republican lawmakers suddenly adjourned a special session of the legislature that was dedicated to public safety after voting down the chance to enact gun laws. And the gun rights groups in Tennessee were celebrating this. One said this was a triumph for Tennessee because, quote, no meaningful action was taken to make the state safer for Tennesseans from gun violence. This is in a country where there's now been more than one mass shooting every single day. Now, this session was created in the wake of a mass shooting in Nashville that shocked the world and that actually drove the Republican governor to call for red flag laws. His own party rejected him. They said, no, we're not going to do it. We prefer to keep our people afraid because the gun lobby is is, by my count, one of the largest donors to Republicans in the state of Tennessee. It is stunning. And this comes on the same day that after a day-long campus lockdown at UNC Chapel Hill, a grad student was formally charged with the murder of an associate professor. And the same day as a white supremacist mass shooting in Florida killed three black Floridians for the crime of being black in Florida. Now, as we talked about yesterday, Ron DeSantis had basically nothing to say about that issue and then promptly left the state, which honestly, Floridians are probably a little better served that way. And in a little bit happier news, this writer's strike in Hollywood has been going on now for months. It's disrupting not just the studios, but also the writers themselves who are not rich people. These are people who, in many cases, are living at the poverty line because of the incredibly exploitative way that Hollywood processes its accounting. There are no residuals for streaming services. You can see a, a show become a hit on Netflix and not see a dime for it. Now, late night hosts Jimmy Kimmel, Stephen Colbert, Jimmy Fallon, John Oliver, and Seth Meyers all stop their shows because they are not going to cross a picket line. Many of them, including Colbert, Fallon, Kimmel, are writers themselves and have a lot of sympathy for these people. What they're doing now is actually, I think, really exciting. They're launching a limited podcast series that's going to take in donations and all the proceeds of that deal are going to go to their staff. And this is just one of the creative ways that people are trying to keep these people in their homes while they negotiate for a better contract. I mean, this is really something that should be common sense. And we, we saw that Netflix, uh, has the Netflix CEO has recently said he doesn't understand why writers are so upset and why they're demanding to actually get compensated for their work. A man who is among the richest people in the world, and you simply cannot be more out of touch than that. In other historical news, we actually have some great labor news there as well. The Factory Act in 1833 passed in England. That settled child labor laws, something the United States wouldn't get around to for another 70 years. And in 1957, Senator Strom Thurmond, the great segregationist, held the longest filibuster in U.S. history. He spoke for 24 straight hours and 18 minutes against the Civil Rights Bill. So I guess 
nothing has really changed. What still gets Republicans out of their seats and mad is any talk of having civil rights at all. Now, again, I'd love to have your calls. We are at 866-997-4748. Would love to chat about any of the news we're talking about or anything that's on your mind. We also have coming up here very shortly, Amanda Moore. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'll be joined by Amanda for a look into the underbelly of the new Republican alt-right. You really do not want to miss this conversation. You're listening to Sirius XM Progress. Stick around. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hey everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on, because you know I love it when you do. Welcome back to Tell Me Everything on this lovely, cloudy Tuesday night in New York. I'm your guest host, Max Burns, sitting in for Mr. John Fugelsang, and I just want to thank you again for sharing your evening with us. Now, what can you say about the alt-right that isn't a profanity-filled rant? I mean, I've tried. It's clear to most Americans that the alt-right isn't so alt anymore. It actually seems to be the entire Republican Party. You've got your Laura Loomers running for Congress in Florida, your Michael Flynn's building what NPR called a right-wing army of God, and who can forget Mr. Pillow Man Mike Lindell, senior advisor to former President Donald Trump. But those names are really just the tip of the hateful iceberg because a majority of the alt-right's newest recruits aren't big-name political players. They're young. They're just entering politics. And they found their way into positions of middle management power at all levels of government in ways that will terrify you. We know this because my first guest has seen it firsthand. Amanda Moore went undercover with the alt-right movement for nearly a year, and her reporting in The Nation is shining a much-needed light on just how deeply infected the GOP has become with the virus of alt-right extremism. Amanda, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. Now, first off, terrifying. Oh, my God. (laughs) Uh, Of all the stunning things in your article, I think it's fascinating how easily so many of these extremist alt-right guys have infiltrated traditional Republican organizations. You mentioned the New York Young Republicans, which was fairly normal until recent years, and now it's basically a front for the worst kind of white nationalist MAGA propaganda. How did these people manage to seize the reins at so many organizations with seemingly no resistance? Well, it's funny that you bring up the New York Young Republicans Club, uh, the president, Gavin Wax. I mean, he's in my article. We never met when I was undercover, but we had basically friends in common. 
But in the time since, I've looked into him and he really got his start on the Ron Paul forums in 2013. Just kind of, you know, posting, edgelord posting. He ended up working uh, for Ted Cruz. He ended up starting this online libertarian blog. And he used that blog to platform James Alsop, who attended Charlottesville Unite the Right and was a speaker in the lead up rallies to it. Uh, he's like a notorious white supremacist, if you yeah. remember 2017, which is so long ago at this point for most people. Um, and, he, you know, and his outlet defended um, defended Charlottesville, defended the rioters, compared uh, male taxpayers to female rape victims in explicit graphic detail. Uh, just a bunch of terrible stuff. And still, somehow, he was also able to interview GOP politicians for his blog, and he was able to become the president of what is now the most notorious young Republican club and the most recognizable young Republican club probably in the country because of him. So, it yeah. Seems, <laughs> it seems like a lot of these kids got their start because they, they latched onto older politicians who liked that they understood the internet and how to meme and go on Twitter. I mean, you describe a lot of these people found their political voice sort of on 4chan, posting white supremacist memes and, and sharing hate content there, and then sort of latched into this undercurrent in the Republican Party. Is that is it really so simple as just 4chan, this breeding ground of right-wing extremism found a, a ready audience in Republicans who just didn't want to learn how to use Twitter? Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of what uh, Wax has done and his own level has been marketing for companies and, you know, getting that start, being being on forums, designing your own website, designing all this stuff. It really it's something that, you know, older politicians just cannot do. Um, and I think, you know, some politicians are very sympathetic towards some of these uh, beliefs. I think Paul Gosar is probably a good example of that. Maybe Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um and and so, yeah, it's kind of a perfect relationship when you think about it that way. And the result of it is all that there really aren't so-called traditional Republican groups anymore. I mean, you note that a lot of these alt-right loyalists are even starting to turn on Charlie Kirk and Turning Point for being MAGA, which they like, but not being alt-right enough, not being anti-Semitic enough, loudly enough. What does the ideal Republican Party look like to these guys? Yeah, I mean, one of the guys that I knew when I was undercover, one of the things he said to me was he wanted the country to become a friendlier Nazi Germany. Um, so oh I guess, yeah, something like that is what it would look like for them. I, I mean, know, Nazi Germany, not known for its cuddliness, I'll give you that. Yeah, no, I guess in his vision, maybe a little cuddliness. Um, yeah, you know, I think a lot of it is they want to push out the people that they see as rhinos, and that would pretty much be anybody who's not willing to vote for Donald Trump in the 2024 election. Uh, and even among people who are willing to vote for Donald Trump, you know, they really look down on people who kind of don't have this Trumpian uh, behavior that they have where they're, you know, loud and brash and, and alienating and polarizing. Uh, they really we, seem to value that. And we saw some of that today in California. There was a, a Trump loyalty rally, it was called where they tarred and feathered the effigy of a rhino Republican and were shouting at people in an In-N-Out Burger parking lot about the revenge they were going to get on these Republicans. I mean, and I, I keep saying these guys, and I really shouldn't, because you point out quite a few prominent women in this movement, a movement that is really notable for its hard, dominionist view of Christianity, its view that women are second-class citizens, if they're citizens at all, 
the the trad wife movement intersects with this really cleanly. What about this reprehensibly repressive movement is drawing women into it? Man, that is hard for me to say. Uh, I mean, that I, people always ask, oh, did you ever uh, get tempted to kind of join their movement or think that maybe they had some good points? And it's like, well, I might be white, but I'm a woman. <laughs> and they, they are really negative about that. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I, there's got to be some kind of psychology behind it that just makes people uh, okay with it, whether it's the way that they were raised or, or something else. You know, I, I was raised evangelical and I, I empathize with a lot of uh, people who kind of uh, walk away from this movement um, because I grew up, you know, kind of uh, kind of like a lunatic, <laughs> I guess. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I, I really don't know what it brings women in. It, I, I see no appeal. I, I can't imagine. I mean, there is this undercurrent in your article and then just what we see on social media of loneliness and social isolation. You mentioned dotted through this article the the various right wing alt right neo Nazi leaders who would hit on you and and try and try and get into your hotel room and you just get this sense that these are young men who just feel so rejected and so locked out of any kind of connection to this country to this society that they want to take that resentment out on everybody and essentially bring everyone to a point where they're the ones on top. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a combination of that. And I also think there's something about that online community that was created uh, in the rise of Trump, where people would just say and post all of this stuff. And I think that there were people who maybe would have just been like regular racist, where they're just quietly racist and they're not um, trying to take over the GOP, which is, you know, it's not good. Being racist is not good, but there's certainly a difference between kind of living, you know, in an area that's predominantly white and being like, I hope I don't see uh, minorities around versus trying to start a friendlier Nazi Germany, right? Those are very different things. And I think that the enthusiasm behind Trump and the community that was created online just forced some of these people to focus on that and like an obsessive quality until it became, well, instead of, you know, being passively racist, I'm now openly and, and brazenly anti-Semitic and racist and sexist. Um, that, that obsessive quality, I think, is a great point because it is a constant reinforcing stream. And you see you see on the message boards people idolizing these alt-right guys who made it and, and saying we can be like that. Uh, if yeah. you're just joining me, I'm talking with Amanda Moore about her article in The Nation where she spent nearly a year infiltrating the alt-right movement at the heart of today's Republican politics. Now, I want to read a quick paragraph here and have you expand on it for our audience you write about a conversation with white supremacist Alex Nelson, and you say Nelson's admission that Joe Biden had won the election took me by surprise. Whether they believed it or not, people like Trejo used the veneer of a stolen election to defend the January 6th insurrectionists. Nelson's statement was far more direct. The Capitol rioters were, quote, our people, and January 6th was a riot of white rage. Now, that seems to me like we're thinking way too narrowly about the alt-right by by the media's tendency to frame this as just about the 2020 election. Do you find that to be the case? Yeah, I mean, he, Nelson was pretty clear that, you know, he knew that Joe Biden won, but he still was very pro the storming of the Capitol. And so, you know, I, I think there were a lot of people there that day on January 6th who really in their hearts believed that Donald Trump won the election. 
but I don't think that those are the people who brought zip ties or had guns stored in Virginia, uh, planning to bring them over to the Capitol. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people, I suspect a lot more people who uh, were kind of ringleaders were in the same position as Nelson, where it was just, you know, what an opportunity. We can do this. We can take over. And that's sort of been the government's case as well in these hundreds of cases, is that the people at the top, the people charged with sedition, they understood that Joe Biden won. Their beef wasn't with the 2020 election. Their beef was with democracy itself. The yeah. simple act of electing someone they didn't want and feeling entitled to invalidate that election through force. I mean, in any sane country, these people would be kept miles away from any kind of power. But as you know, they're actually finding pretty ready employment in the GOP. But what have you found? What was most surprising to you about the people who have been employed in, in Congress, in these advocacy organizations? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most surprising things that happened to me was um, Shane Trejo took my number and after a couple of weeks said, hey, you know, you live in D.C., we can have you meet with our guy at the Hungarian embassy and he's going to train you to recruit Matt Gates into our caucus. And this was done with zero vetting. I was using a fake last name, you know, but I was using enough real details that a dedicated I could have found me. You know, it would have taken me a couple of weeks, but I could have found me. But they did nothing to kind of uh, to research me or or to look into my background. And they were immediately just, you can meet with somebody at the embassy and they will help you train up to recruit Matt Gates into our caucus. It was uh, shocking that they were so brazen about it. Just didn't care. I mean, that seems like something that, that at the minimum, the Department of Justice would be interested in. There's, there's always been speculation about the level of connection between sort of right wing governments overseas like Hungary and the alt right here. But it seems like it is a one-to-one -one connection. They're not just admirers of what Viktor Orban is doing. They're actually collaborating and trying to export Hungary's right-wing authoritarianism here. And they have ready allies at Newsmax, at Fox News. Tucker Carlson is a, has said many times he's an admirer of what Orban has done. Yeah. Yeah. And just like just like Tucker Carlson, Gavin Wax, uh, New York Republican Club's president, has gone out to Hungary and given speeches, praising Orban. Uh, Wax has spoken uh, at both seatback Hungaries. And, you know, it's just propaganda <laughs> for Orban is all it really is. He's got one of his friends in this organization he's involved in, has gone out and, and for our U.S. election, covered it on Hungarian television. Yep. Um, yeah, so it is pretty, they are pretty well connected, the two. And this evolution sort of into a, a Republican Party that's clearly white supremacist, blood and soil, Nazi nationalism. Did you get any sense when you were talking to them and, and in these group chats uh, and, and in one bizarre conversation I saw uh, Nelson you were talking to was concerned that he wasn't being anti-Semitic enough to be allowed into a group chat. And it really shows you that that longing to be accepted. But I'm curious if you at any point heard anything about what these people were hoping to do in 2024 to either influence the election or or try and overturn it again. Yeah, I mean, my impression is that every election forever will be contested at this point. <laughs> if it doesn't, if the presidential election, or at least as long as Donald Trump is running, don't turn out the way they want. I feel like uh, that is kind of the goal. 
Um, you know, I was undercover. I got doxxed in November of 2021. So at the time, 2024 was a little less on the horizon than it is now. Um, and they were really, even at the end of my time, they were still just dedicated to overturning the 2020 election results, um, which is, you know, at what point is it just, you just take the L, you know, it's it's been so long at this point. Can you still, uh, can you still overturn the results? Well, plenty of Republicans seem to think so. I mean, now this yeah. is metastasizing into from from overturning the 2020 election to uh, one Republican lawmaker in Georgia saying that he was hoping that the Georgia police would help him break Trump out of jail if he's put in jail and actually restore him to the presidency by force. And you see under his comments, just hundreds and hundreds of young right wing people cheering this on and volunteering to effectively die for Donald Trump. I mean, what, if anything, can the sane people in this country do to push back on that? Because I, I think deprogramming them is out of the question. They're too far gone for that. Yeah, I think a lot of it really falls into the shoulders of Republicans who don't feel this way. And I mean, those people still exist, right? <laughs> there are people who are very opposed to to rolling over for Russia uh, the way that uh, the Trumpers seem to be doing right now. You know, there are people who are opposed to uh, the belief that Donald Trump won the 2020 election. You know, there there are people who are Republicans who are not part of this. And I think a lot of the onus is on them. It's their party and they have to clean up the mess. And I don't know, you know, if you've got loved ones who have fallen into this like Trump trap. Uh, I think it's important to be in communication with them if you can tolerate it. You know, my dad is a huge Trump fan and we just, I can't talk about it with them. I'll never be able to change his mind. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, but maybe somebody else could, you know, sometimes you're a little too close to a little too close to the target and it's difficult. Um, but yeah, I, I really think when it comes to the actual party itself, like Republicans got to clean up house. Yeah. I wonder if there are any left with the courage or, or quite frankly, the authority to send that message. I mean, there have been professional cult deprogrammers who have remarked on how this MAGA alt-right movement is one of the most virulent and tough things to deprogram in people. And these are people who deprogram people at Jonestown. So yeah. hearing them say that, I mean, did you in your time in, in this organization see anything that gave you any sense of optimism that maybe some people are, are wavering or that there is some kind of silver lining here that's going to come out of this? Well, I actually uh, had a piece published today in The Nation, a little follow-up to my undercover article. I was at the Young Republican National Convention uh, in Dallas, Texas, when my undercover piece came out. And I was there with Gavin Wax, <laughs> uh, who was not very happy with the uh, the undercover that article. That must have been fun. Yeah, it, it was great for me. It was uh, tremendous content. Um, but, you know, there uh, other Young Republicans who were there were happy to talk to me. And in the time since, kind of more have been willing to speak with me, especially since this article today came out, um, because they don't like this. They don't like the direction things are going. You know, I I heard people talking specifically about Ukraine. You know, we have a lot of Ukrainians in my district and they're reliable Republican voters. And I can't stand to sit here any longer and listen to these people talk about how they don't have a right to sovereignty. And um, I think, you know, that was a, a positive experience for me, just hearing, you know, people who are actually involved in the party condemn what they were hearing. Well, I wish they would have done that years ago. But honestly, anyone who, who can speak up should speak up because there will come a point if they don't where these people will control 
the Republican Party as a whole. And that yeah. would be an incredibly dark time. Well, yeah. this is all incredibly disturbing. And but we're lucky to have someone like you taking the real risk to your safety to go undercover and do this. I think a lot of people think of journalism in a vacuum as people writing from their apartments in D.C. But this is exactly the kind of journalism that the alt-right wants to make illegal because they it exposes at great risk to you the truth of just how toxified this politics is. Uh, in, in, the, in the minute or so we have left, let our audience know how they can find you, how they can read your writing, and, and, and how they can play a part in pushing back and helping. Yeah, so you can find me on every social media platform, but I'm mostly on Twitter. My username is noturtlesoup17 uh, on, on everything, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all of it. Um, I've got both pieces up in the nation about my time undercover and the follow-up with that you can check out. And then, you know, I think just try to be involved is really the best thing that you can do. Be involved in your local politics, uh, because that is what the far right is doing. They're going to be very involved with local politics and it's better if it's you doing it instead of them. That is the absolute truth. If nothing else, Republicans have shown you that even if idiots get involved in large enough numbers, they can reshape <laughs> an entire national party. Amanda, thank you so much. You promise you'll come back and we can talk about this and other nightmare topics more. Hopefully you have some good news ahead for you. I can't imagine spending 11 more months with these morons. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I'll figure something out. <laughs> that was my guest, Amanda Moore, talking about her powerful piece in The Nation on just how deeply the new young alt-right has infiltrated Republican politics. I'll make sure to throw that link up on my Twitter at Burns as well. When we get back, your calls at 866-997-4748. You're listening to SiriusXM Progress. Stick around. Welcome back to Tell Me Everything with John Fugelsang. I am honored to be your guest host, Max Burns, filling in for the week. And we've got some folks waiting on the line so I'm actually going to skip my end of the hour thoughts here and hop right to your calls. Again, that number is 866-997-4748 or shoot me a tweet over at the Max Burns. We actually here have Bill from New Jersey on the line. He wants to talk about Trump suing over his mugshot, which surprise, surprise. Bill, how are you? Oh, OK, you know, uh, one day I should be able to walk down Fifth Avenue and get arrested for blocking the traffic. Anyway, um, yeah, regarding the photograph, it turns out the photograph actually belongs to the Fulton County Jail. And he has no right to use it and make money off of it. And they could sue him big time. But now he's threatening people who are using his photo uh, by threatening to sue them because it's his photo. So guys, I saw it. Donna, he's also complaining that other Republicans are using it to raise money. You know, only only Donald Trump right. is allowed to profit off Donald Trump's crimes, apparently. Yeah. And the Fulton County Jail. I mean, by rights, they should be entitled to any profit he makes off of it because he didn't buy the rights to it and he didn't make the photo. And, uh, you know, uh, I mean, it's just another example of how he has no clue when it comes to Anything that's honest or was or anything, you know, you know, everything is his, you know, that's why that's why he was bad at being president, because he's never been an employee before. And he didn't realize you can't steal stuff from your uh, uh, boss because he's never had. Oh. 
Well, he's had a whole life of stealing stuff. For, you know, I think a lot about the fact right. that if Donald Trump had never run for president, he likely would have been able to get away with the cascading financial fraud he committed in New York that was only brought to the attention of prosecutors once he failed to show his taxes. I mean, this is a guy who's so used to getting away with crime, he never expects well, that yeah. he'll be charged. Well, the biggest crazy nonsense when he first ran was everybody from here, you know, in New York knew that he was a scoundrel and he was acting exactly like what the South would describe a carpetbagger or a city slicker or something. And they bought it anyway because he was on some stupid show, which they believed. And uh, he, uh, you know, he's just a disease, period. And uh, I, I think that uh, uh, the the worst thing that's going to happen is people are going to realize, especially with stuff like with the photograph and Sean Hannity calling him out. And, oh, no, that wasn't him, but that was Ramaswamy, I guess. But uh, anyway, I think that uh, uh, Trump is uh, people are going to realize at some point he's just a dead end going nowhere. And he's a victim of his own psychology. Uh, You know, you have to admit, it's an incredibly profitable psychosis he has because Donald Trump has raised millions of dollars off this photo already. And what I think a lot of Mm -hmm. MAGA voters don't realize or don't care about Mm -hmm. is that most of that money is going to his legal defense fund. It's not going to elect Republicans across the country. Mm -hmm. Right. And one other thing, when it comes to abortion, how is it we have a legal definition of death, but we don't have a legal definition of life? And it seems to be whatever they want to move it to any other day. I mean, you know, I'm not I'm a Christian, but I'm related to Jesus. And uh, what I understand, and his law at that time was that uh, the unborn had no soul. And it's true in terms of development. The last thing that develops in your body is your brain and the part that you can um, have all your consciousness in, and that's the last month of development. If a baby is born early, they're startled by things like the sound of their mother's voice and things. If they're born on time, they're already used to knowing it and the smell of the amniotic fluid and everything, but they have no folds in their brain. So if you have no conscience, if you had no experience in life at anything, you don't exist. And according to the Bible, you don't have a soul until you gasp, you take your first breath. And according to Maimonides, who was a Jewish uh, philosopher and a great yep. uh, uh, doctor, he said that, and he and entered into the Talmud that a, fe- a fetus that it poses harm to its mother is a murderer on on uh, on the run to kill its own mother. That it's. Uh, in other words, it's 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 a horrible thing. The opposite of what they're talking. About. The the idea that a pulsing vein is some sort of sign of life. You know, you can get the same thing out of frogs' legs that are dead when you put a charge through it. But well, I, I think and, we both agree that the definition of life for Republicans has always been whatever is most politically advantageous well, for them at the time. I mean, you have Republicans right. have had ten different definitions of where life begins just in well, the past year. Right. Well, you know, the Republicans say, I'll love you until Labor Day. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. It's as as uh, George Carlin said, they care about you when you're pre-born, but not in preschool. That's right. Um, 
but uh, it's it's horrible. And if you look into the evangelicals, they are usually originally pro-abortion, and they were talked into it when the vote was needed uh, uh, by Reagan, and they were do, doing a uh, they were anti they were pro-segregationists, and they and they decided that that's not good for business, so they switched them on to uh, anti-abortion as their cause. But before that. They were pro. They said that abortion was a Catholic problem. This is the evangelists. And they were pro-abortion. So, you know, and it just took, uh, uh, what's his name? That one of those uh, evangelical crazies uh, who told them that uh, abortion is wrong. And then they suddenly, uh, right around Reagan, even though it, they had supported it since it was in law for like six or seven years, suddenly there was no good. Yep. Yeah. And it's it's one of the things in Christianity. I mean, as a man of faith myself, one of the things that's always baffled me is mm -hmm. that the Catholic Church claims to say it's it's anti-choice position is the word of God. But they changed that position back about 144 years ago, prior to 1869 and Pope Pius IX. Mm -hmm. uh, abortion right. was allowed in the Catholic Church. It was considered right. actually not that big a priority for the church. And it suddenly right. changed and has become the way ever since. Mm -hmm. And it's been affirmed in the Bible where they say uh, in law, if a woman who's pregnant is punched and they lose the baby, they have to be paid a uh, amount of money. But if the woman is punched and she dies, he, he has to be hanged for that. So, yeah, it's it's, it's considered a, uh, a possession of the mother. It's not considered anything else. And you can't. And that, and that is such a, a fascinating point, because, I mean, we we mm -hmm. act as if this has all been been the truth forever. And I don't think I'm telling tales out of school. I mean, in the 1590s, it was Pope Gregory the 14th determined in an official mm -hmm. Catholic position that mm -hmm. life began at about 24 weeks, which is still mm -hmm. the limit on abortion in the UK. I mean. People who held a different view that life began at 15 weeks or six weeks were excommunicated from the church for defying God. So the idea right. that Republicans now are proposing a six week ban, it, it puts them at odds with the majority of the history of the faith they claim right. to represent. Yeah. And Jesus never said anything about abortion or homosexuality. Nothing. So he believed what was the religion at the time, which is that. Until the baby takes its first breath, it's not doesn't have a soul. It has the equivalent of a soul of an animal because all preborn animals are all the same. And uh, yeah, absolutely, you know. and, and as as John would say, a man who was of, of much more learning in in the faith than me. Mm -hmm. You know, the, yeah. these Republicans they love to follow everything except what Jesus actually said. And once you actually right. quote to them the things Jesus said. They would deride him as a communist socialist lib. Right, right, right. Just like, uh, you know, making drugs affordable, you know, is uh, ins considered insane. You know, my Absolutely. parents grew up in a time where to now they'd be considered communist because of all the socialism they had. That was from the government and everything, with a GI Bill and everything. And nothing could be further than the truth. Anyway, uh, no, it, it has always been a, a, a political movement completely based on expediency. And quite honestly, we see in, in surveys of the nation on, on organized religion and faith, one of the main reasons 
young Americans reject organized religion in America is because they correctly mm -hmm. see it as having been co-opted and hollowed out by a very exclusionary, very oppressive, very hateful Republican majority. And thankfully, there yeah. are, are people like John. There are people on the progressive left in Christianity mm -hmm. who are pushing back against that. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, yeah. it, it's made up things to divide people. And especially right. on abortion, you're talking about right. taking a woman's life to prove a moral yeah. point. I mean, square yeah. that circle for me. Yeah. Right. And we have to liberate the least among us instead of putting them down or treating them less than human. That is so Christian to begin with. So why is that not happening? Why is the opposite? It's oh, Republicans it's won't like that. Republicans hate the least among us. I mean, here in New York, we had Republicans coming in from out of state to throw rocks uh -huh. at refugees who came here uh, to, uh -huh. to come and get arrested trying to attack the mayor's house in, in Gracie uh -huh. Park. I mean, it is mm -hmm. terrifying to see that this is all mm -hmm. done while chanting mm -hmm. about Christianity. I mean, it, it is terrifying to me, genuinely yeah. terrifying. Right. And I was once called to be a, a juror on a case with insurance company. And the question that was asked was, if you had a, um, uh, a sign on your car, a bumper sticker, what would it say? And I, I said, uh, it would be morality over money. And they said, next, next juror, you know, forget it. That's, that is the way of it. Well, I, Bill, I appreciate mm -hmm. your call. I think we're just about sure. to head into a break. But when we come back, we'll take some more calls at 866-997-4748. You're listening to SiriusXM Progress. Stick around. Hey, all. Glenn Kirshner here. Friends, I hope you'll join me on my audio podcast, Justice Matters. We talk about not only the legal issues of the day, but we also talk about the need to reform ethics in our government. Here's one example, the oath of office. You know the one. I do solemnly swear to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Let's add 22 words to that oath. Quote, and I will promptly report any instances of crime and or corruption by government officials and employees of which I become aware. Friends, our democracy is worth fighting for. Join us in this fight, because justice matters. Look for Justice Matters wherever you ordinarily find your podcasts. Welcome back, friends. Thanks for staying with us as we enter the 10 o'clock hour here on Tell Me Everything with John Fugelsang. I'm Max Burns, sitting in for John this week. Now, we've got some huge news today on the healthcare front. After promising to use the power of government to negotiate better prescription drug prices for Americans, Joe Biden has delivered once again. And it means big changes on the way for tens of millions of Americans living with chronic illnesses. I'm talking about the Medicare drug price negotiation program that came as part of the Inflation Reduction Act. And boy, that's a lot of words, but what it does is historic. This is going to lower drug prices by directly negotiating with drug manufacturers, and it's going to cut prices for 65 million people, including 57 million seniors. And Joe Biden marked that occasion at the East Room of the White House, where he and Kamala Harris 
spoke about how important this was and honestly, how bad Americans have been getting shafted on drug prices. Here's Joe Biden earlier today at the White House. VA pays 50 percent less than Medicare can for and negotiating the same lower prices for years. Big Pharma blocked us. They kept prescription drug prices high to increase their profits and extend patents on existing drugs to suppress fair competition instead of innovating. Playing games and pricing so they could charge whatever they can. But this is finally, 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 we had enough votes by a matter of one to beat Big Pharma. Well, we did it. That's incredible. Incredible. And when you think about the scale of this fight, it really is mind blowing. Uh, according to data that was compiled uh, by Bernie Sanders and shared out over the past 25 years, the pharmaceutical industry has spent over eight and a half billion dollars lobbying Congress and almost a billion dollars on campaign contributions. I mean, think of that a billion dollars. There are now three drug company lobbyists for every single member of Congress. And they are in those lawmakers' ears every single day. I mean, we see Pfizer has donated a million dollars to the Kentucky Republican Party. And they're, they're naming one of their headquarters after Mitch McConnell. I mean, this is because Pfizer increased their profits 140% in 2021. That's $22 billion. I mean, Americans are dying in this country because they can't afford basic medication. But the five largest drug companies in America made $80 billion in profits last year. That's up 100%. I mean, these guys are doing just fine. The CEOs of the 13 biggest companies, they brought home a billion dollars in total compensation. So trust me, they can take this blow. But as Joe Biden noted, one vote, just one vote made the difference. Because remember, Every single Republican had the chance to stand up for our seniors and for the Americans who are struggling with serious health issues. And what did they do? They cashed their drug industry checks, they shut up, and they voted against the American people. It's an act we've seen so many times before. And finally, finally, after decades of work, Joe Biden has delivered what even Barack Obama couldn't. And I think that deserves to be noted. Barack Obama tried. Barack Obama fought. But Joe Biden took the opportunity, seized the moment, and delivered. Now, thanks to the Biden administration, the feds can now negotiate prices of 10 Medicare Part D drugs. That includes anti-diabetics like Jardians, Genuvia, and Farshiga, and drugs that treat and prevent strokes and heart issues like Eliquis, Zarelto, and Entresto. And man, those names, though, it makes me feel like I'm having a stroke trying to pronounce them. But this is, this is really no joke. I mean, especially in a country so overrun with pharmaceutical money. And Biden isn't done yet. Today was the rollout of those first 10 prescription drugs. There are going to be more to come. And now you see why Republicans are so dead set on repealing the Inflation Reduction Act, because this is really going to start cutting into the bottom lines of their pharmaceutical bosses. Maybe now those executives will only take home half a billion dollars next year. And man, you just can't buy super yachts like you used to anymore. But Republicans, they want to call this socialism. Well, the rest of us call it keeping people alive and healthy. Healthy people, healthy economy, healthy country. 
And don't worry, the big pharma companies, they're still going to be here. They can still sell around the world. The only difference is they're not able to screw over the American people quite as aggressively as they did before. And of course, you know, none of this is going to stop Republicans from going back to their districts and taking credit for something every single one of them voted against. But as Joe Biden has said before, he doesn't take it personally. He'll take the win and he'll keep on winning. I'll tell you, I I am not getting tired of winning. Now, I want to pause here for a second and jump on a call because we've had Sean waiting. Sean in California has some thoughts on Trump and the Republican grift. And I would love to hear this. Hey, brother. Yeah. Uh, You know, the whole point of what's been going on here is commit crimes, commit more crimes, commit more crimes, uh, and then ask people for money to help with your legal um, defense. And, And this has been happening in Donald bin Laden's whole career. That's what he does. That's what he's been known for. And the other thing is he doesn't even pay his attorneys. So the only thing I can think of is that the attorneys that work for Donald bin Laden are just trying to make a big name for themselves. If they get lucky and win a case, then, oh, my goodness, they're on top of the food chain. But I don't think that's really what they're doing. What they're doing is they're trying to grift and mooch off of him, except that's all he's doing. And that's all his people are doing around him. So it's like this big grifting and mooching kind of crazy circus that's going on. Because, look, I won't say Donald bin Laden, a.k.a. Donald Trump, is broke. But I'll tell you what. You know, he can't afford that plane he has. He can't afford anything that's going on right now because he's paying attorneys. I'm surrounded by attorneys. I'm not an attorney, but I'm surrounded. You know how much money really good attorneys demand that they get to, um, you know, be for you, be for you, be an advocate. They ask for a lot of money. It's like 0.6 per hour. They ask for. And this is this is why, honestly, I think Donald Trump has cornered himself, because not only are most of the attorneys he normally works with now co-defendants in his crimes, so he can't work with them. But any good attorney sees Donald Trump and runs miles away. He is literally working with people who are so bad at their jobs One of them in D.C. court this week was reprimanded twice for making insane arguments that had no bearing on the law. These are people basically willing (laughs) to take an I.O.U. And the only people more more foolish than that are the MAGA voters who are donating to a billionaire who says he needs your 20 bucks to pay his legal bills. It is really hard to believe this is real life. Well, it's really sad that there is that segment of America, which, by the way, every day of my life in at least 38 years, and I'm a lot older, I'm 56 plus years old, is that, you know, I've been working for all the people that have a hard time making it economically. And, and, and sometimes people who, who are getting dissed, meaning being, you know, a, you know, oppressed, by the economic system don't realize 
the Democratic Party isn't perfect, but they are the ones that are trying to help you have a better quality of life. The Republican Party just wants to have rich people have more money with tax breaks, tax cuts, and no regulations on big business. It's really that simple. And it's really sad because when they say that, you know, they do all these abortion things and all that, people, you should never want to take away anyone's privacy rights. You should never want to be in other people's business. I, when I grew up, don't be in other people's business and keep your hands to yourself. And that's really the uh, Constitution is really solid on that. But the Republicans want to distort it and make it seem like we're going to tell you what to do with Republicans in charge. It really it really is amazing. And I mean, I thought at first that Alina Haba was for sure the worst lawyer Donald Trump had ever hired. And then I met John Loro, a man who I think sets the Guinness Book of World Records for worst representation possible. This is a guy who was in court this week and was chastised by a judge for asking for a trial date in April of 2026, saying that he just didn't have time to read all the documents. And the judge essentially said to him, you've been on television every single day for hours prosecuting this Hello. case on television. Surely you have time to prosecute this in a court. I mean, Laura was on Laura Ingram's show where he essentially admitted Fulton County's case to Laura Ingram. And he said that Trump said, let's halt the voting and allow the state legislatures to make a determination. That's exactly what he's being accused of doing in Fulton County. So if this is the caliber of representation he has, I, I, I think it's going to be a blockbuster of a trial. I am so glad this will be televised because the American people need uh, to see that not all yeah. not all lawyers are good. That's true. And can you imagine a, a lawyer saying, I suck so bad, I can't do my job. And that's a defense. That's what you're going to tell the judge. The judge wants to hear, judge, I'm ready to provide the best defense you could ever hear in the history of the world. And this is why, you know, unless there's some crazy crap going on, uh, Donald bin Laden's going down and all you fools that haven't flipped yet are going down. It, it just is mind boggling to me. John Loro has done more damage to Donald Trump's case, I think, than Donald Trump has. I mean, that's impressive in itself. <laughs> yes. There was and that was the least insane argument that he made in that case. There was and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this because I've wanted to talk about it. Uh, there was a situation in court where Donald Trump's lawyers compared his case to the Scottsboro Boys, which, if, if you're not oh, familiar, well. is a famous 1931 case of nine teenage black men who were arrested on suspicion of rape. And they were essentially met at the courthouse by a lynch mob that wanted to kill them. They were put on trial six days after they were arrested. Uh, many of them were sentenced either to death or to life in prison on no evidence. And Donald Trump's lawyers told an African-American judge that his case was exactly like that and that the only oh, difference Lord. was that Donald Trump was the president. I mean, the, the judge had none of it. Clearly. They, her response to this was stunning. She said there was no comparison in these cases. 
She rattled off the facts of this case, something she has clearly studied very closely. And, and John Loro had nothing, absolutely nothing. I mean, the court at the time noted that the Scottsboro boys didn't get a fair trial. They had an all white jury that they, the governor openly said that they should just plead guilty and encouraged the jury to convict them. And that no, literally wow. none of this. I mean, it is stunningly offensive and stupid. And I just can't believe well, it we, really happened. Well, it, it happened and it's sad and it's part of our history, which we all need to learn our actual history. But it's also a, uh, a case of desperation when you are someone that has been completely um, having white privilege your entire life of grifting and mooching and causing people to not get paid and to have fraud, you, you, Trump University, on and on and on. Everything's a fraud. Everything's a grift. Everything's a mooch. You know, and then you're going to take it out on people that were actually deprived of their rights and, and actually, you know, hurt because of, you know, what they had to go through, especially black and brown people or women, for that matter, because Donald bin Laden, Donald Trump, he doesn't discriminate when it comes to discrimination. He he goes for women. He goes for black people. He goes for brown people and he goes for anyone that isn't white. So, yeah, it's sad. Well, I'll tell you, you want to alienate a judge, tell a tell a black judge who has worked in civil rights law that she is the equivalent of a, a white Southern judge that essentially ran a lynch mob. I mean, Judge Chutkin said, and I want to quote this, she said, quoting the Scottsboro case, the defense argues that scheduling a too speedy trial is not to proceed in the calm spirit of justice, but to go forward with the haste of a mob. This timeline well, does not move the case forward with the haste of a mob. The trial will start three years, one month and 27 days after the events of January 6th, 2021. I mean, I can't think of a better way to go into a trial with no sympathy from a judge than what when John Loro just did. I mean, any any other lawyer yeah. would hang his head in shame and quit. Well, I mean, I think, the, you know, this is how it gives us a little more. Um, you know, understanding that there are still people in our justice system that understand that we need to protect the actual institutions that are here. And there's nothing wrong with that statement. The statement is you're going to get a speedy trial. And guess what? You are accused of serious crimes, but this is going to be adjudicated quickly. And you're going to have to be ready with all your attorneys. And if the attorneys aren't ready and they're not ready for it, tough shit. you got to be ready. This is the United States of America. We're going to give you every opportunity to say you are innocent before proven guilty, but you better be fucking ready. And if you ain't ready, tough shit, you're going to lose. I mean, it really does show you where we are in America, that a racist billionaire who said the Central Park Five should be put to death, even though they were innocent, Hello. Now is comparing himself to to an oppressed civil rights case of, of people who were effectively lynched. Sean, I appreciate your call. Thank you so Thanks, much brother. for giving us the chance to talk about it.
I want to jump over to Norm in Tampa. Norm is a pharmacist, and he wants to talk about the issue of eliminating independent pharmacies. Norm, how are you? I've been fine, fine. You know, I called you yesterday about the DeSantis burger that I sent them. Yep. From DeSantis, where I hope you had a chance to look at it. But, you know, again, I did. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Uh, One of the other adventures I've done in life is is a pharmacist. And, you know, I've seen this, and I've been one for 47 years. And so when I look at this and I see, uh, you know, the changes that I've seen insulin go from $3 to $3,000. And uh, many of the drugs that we dispensed back then don't even exist now. You know, I saw when yep. Motrin came up, you know, when Valium and Dolmain and all these other, and, and were all uh, medications that you had on that were not controlled and stuff like that. But the point is, is that one, had, but the, one of the biggest differences is that we eliminated our, our, our independent pharmacies. These independent guys, these little mom and pop operations, helped stabilize the drug prices. And so when the government came around and started uh, adding uh, restrictions, made it difficult for pharmaceutical pharmaceutical companies used to love the sold of the independents because that's that's what they did. But then, you know, came the corporate greed kind of stuff, either during the uh, Reagan era and changed all the laws and the lobbyists came in. Then these independents started disappearing. So you end up with the big companies, the Walgreens, the Walmarts, and and, you know, the grocery stores and the next thing, you know, they, they control the prices. They got control of the uh, not only the, the set the prices, but control of the pharmacy boards. And when that happened, then the whole thing was based upon these conglomerates and they just uh, went wild with it. And uh, and so people's medications prices uh, went up and you just go around to your little corner where the little corner grocery store was it's not there anymore you know yeah and no you're absolutely right i mean the truth uh, is people say we have a drug price problem we have a corporate greed problem i remember last year back in november of last year tricare the military's healthcare program removed fifteen thousand independent pharmacies from their network i mean and, and essentially said these people who were holding prices down they're just going to close now we're not going to yeah, work with them anymore right. because they won't take our price hikes. And that was actually so blatant. One of the only times I have ever said the words, Senator Tom Cotton is right, because he joined in a bipartisan effort to undo that. It wasn't successful, but he also was punished by his pharmaceutical donors for daring to stand up to this. But you're right. I mean, eliminating right. independent pharmacies is step one in keeping drug prices high. And they have yep. no bad feelings about doing that. They don't care about yeah. veterans. They don't care about seniors. They need another yacht. Exactly. And the prices shot up. And we had this one guy, the, the drug culture seat. I mean, this stuff was so, uh, seven cents a tap, even less than that. And, and stuff. guy bought the company and then drove the price up, the stock prices up. And uh, it's almost like a thousand dollars for 30 tablets. It's ridiculous. This stuff's been around for centuries and things like that. We've seen the, these kind of corporate, uh, this, uh, this that corporate uh, uh, stockholder greed that, that takes place. These guys are in it for, for the profit. You see the same thing is happening in dentistry. In dentistry, you know, you said little independent, the dentist, 
that comes along now, what you have are these corporate clinics, and they're only interested now, you know, every time you go in, I mean, you go in, they want to sell you on implants, you know, an implant rather than, let's say, let's do a, people don't even think about doing a bridge anymore or trying to save your teeth. I mean, you can do an extraction and then put an implant in there. That's three, $4,000 there. And uh, that's what they're looking at. And what happens is you, you then make the school prices are so expensive that, uh, you know, when a guy, person comes out of uh, medical school, dental school, or pharmacy school, they have, they have to get in there and make some money in order to pay off those student loans. You know, when I went to pharmacy school at Florida and university, it cost me uh, uh, $5,000 for uh, five and a half years. When I went to the great university of Michigan school of dentistry, you know, the great university of Michigan for four and a half years, it cost me $18,000. Now it costs you almost a hundred thousand dollars. And that's just a, uh, a full year or a full semester. When you come out, you're 60 something, uh, $600,000 in debt. And in addition to that, in dental, yep. you have to buy your own equipment. You know, so yep. I mean, we did they offer you the less money. and charge more. And we see that, that the quality want- is declining. It's not as if we're paying more and getting better results. The quality is going down. Exactly. Even though we have better equipment and those sort of things and, and better, uh, 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 I should say, radiographic equipment and, and those sort of things, you know, it has made it difficult for the common person to get affordable. Think about affordable care is out the window, you know, and you still have these insurance companies and quality these insurance companies are still paying a thousand dollars in dental care, or two, or fifteen hundred dollars in dental care, dental insurance. That's what they're. That's what you get every year, and these prices are going up, 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 up. That's what yep. we used to get paid twenty years, uh, thirty years ago, fifteen hundred. And, and service is is going down. I mean, the dirty secret exactly. that you cannot get Republicans service. to talk about is the no, fact that between two thousand three and today. The number of, right. of independent pharmacies in rural communities, it declined 10 percent. In right. some yes, cases, yes. rural communities, only pharmacies closed. And Republicans don't want to talk about that, even though it hurts their voters. The small guy can't compete against when a Walmart comes into town or uh, especially a Walmart comes into town. The small guy independent can't pe- compete against that. And you began to see this is one of the things about the uh, that the, that the independents started doing, at least down here, they started selling the control medication because that way the insurance companies don't have any regulations, a little regulation on. Now, when a guy fills a prescription, fills a prescription, what people don't realize is sometimes you get a negative reimbursement. The pharmacy ends up owing the insurance company twenty five, forty five. Uh, or $50, or then the insurance company may take, uh, uh, you see this in dentistry, uh, may take three, four months to pay you. And especially, and here's the other thing they don't, don't realize, they do it by zip code. So there yep. is a, a discriminatory factor that's put in, 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 in the place. So if I live out deep inside the hood and I'm trying to help my neighbors, I mean, my, and I, where I grew up at, you know, uh, I'm going to be paid different from 
my 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 good uh, friends that uh, and and in the end, the, the only people, the only people who end up winning in the end are the pharmaceutical companies. Norm, I appreciate your call. I really appreciate you bringing this up. This is something we are not talking about enough. We are right at the end of our time. I thank you so much for the call. I'm Max Burns, and you are indeed listening to Tell Me Everything, where I'm sitting in for the one and only John Fugel saying this week. You're listening to SiriusXM Progress. Thank you.